glass of water. Who's that handsome? Canvas, art and ideas on FBI Radio. It's just past 11 and you're listening to Canvas, your weekly fine arts program on FBI Radio 94.5 and I'm your host David Capra. And I'm not, I'm Sabella D'Souza. To start, Canvas would like to acknowledge the rightful caretakers of this land upon which we broadcast the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Canvas pays respects to our Indigenous listeners, our guests and their elders, past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that this land was never sold, traded or given up. Sovereignty never ceded. So what have you been up to this week? I can tell you where I went and saw. Okay, you tell me what you've gone and seen, David. (laughs) I went and saw Megan Wilding's A Little Bit of Ash, and that was at the King's Cross Theatre. And I love what Megan does. I think she is really one to watch. And uh, we had her on the show last year, and uh, she was in Blackie, Blackie Brown at the Sydney Theatre Company. In this, it's all about grief and um, and how... And, well... Pretty much, Megan is as likeable and funnier as as ever. And I went and saw it with uh, none other than Giselle Stanborough, who used to host Canvas with us. We miss you, Giselle. We miss you. She has since gone on to win 100K. Yes, along with other Canvas alumni, Fran Barrett. That's right. Yeah. So they won the Kathy Cavalieri Award. Yes, scholarship. They did. So, uh, I, scholarship? Is it a scholarship? I th- well, I know that it was money from the estate yes. of Cathy's, and um, and they chose three artists to three female artists that um uh, that make performance work. Well, we had um, um Daniel Muddy Cunningham on uh, I think last year to talk about the scholarship and what they were looking for. So yeah, and I think we're having an upcoming segment in the next few weeks talking about it as well. That's exciting. What have you been doing this week? Um, what have I? I've been doing mainly I've been doing my honours which has been very fun and buying wigs for my upcoming oh. exhibition at First Draft so I've been buying wigs for Julia Roberts for Julia Roberts well for myself as Julia Roberts I, can't I bought like wait. a giant red one from Patty's Market and I'm um, very excited what's that one from what film um so it's from Mona Lisa's smile. Oh yes, and she's the art teacher. Yes, yes, and <laughs> That's she's right. and she's you know I want to stand in front of a Jackson Pollock and be like I love it. It's amazing. Like look at this work, girls. Really excited for that. And then my <laughs> the, I am too. And uh, Notting Hill. Yes. And then also the last one is my best friend's wedding. Oh, right. What? Cameron, it's with Cameron Diaz. Yes, that's right, of course. But she's got like this, uh, her red, she's her got red the big hair red, going. Like, perm, um, that's curly right. hair. And she's like, I'm doing the scene where like Cameron Diaz is like, you and your big hair. And she's like yelling at her in the middle of a baseball toilet. And all these women like are crowding around, like cheering on for them to fight. It's great. It's a great. Scene. How fantastic. Do you have a Cameron Diaz? Like, is someone playing? No, no Cameron? one's no one's playing Cameron. You know, it'll be me facing off against Cameron. Um, That's I'm- amazing. <laughs> I'm very excited and very happy for you. That's very, very special. Well, let's go to our. F- oh, no, let's not. Let's talk about who we actually have on air today. Well, up first, it's Asad Raza, an artist from New York who's in Sydney to organize the upcoming Caldor project. And we will. 
and will be joining us by phone. Yes, I've got a very busy schedule at the moment, so we're very lucky to have him on. Then it's Western Sydney artist and also a former sculpture teacher of mine. He was mm. once named the bad boy of contemporary Australian ceramics, which I didn't even know was a title. No. Um, but we're having Ramesh Mario Nithyendran coming on. Um, I'm very excited for that. Um, our first track from is from FBI... FBI's album of the week. This is Casey Kelsey Lou with their song Track Blood. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Starting the show, that was West Coast Kelsey Lou with her debut album and song Blood. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio and I'm David Capra and we're joined by artist Asad Raza right now by phone. Born in 1974 in Buffalo, USA and of Pakistani background, Asad works um, works with experiences, human and non-human beings and objects. He conceives of exhibitions as metabolic entities, zones of activity in which he constructs dialogue and scenarios between visitors and participants. Asad is joining us by phone right now. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Asad, um, we've read a little bit about your project and um, we read that there's a dedicated group of uh, cultivists who will inhabit and take care of the space. Who are some of your favourite cultivators that uh, work within society in general that you've had the pleasure of working with? Mm, I think you could find them in any walk of life, but by cultivator I sort of mean somebody who thinks about the overall situation um, around them rather than only maybe themselves or rather than a, a, a narrower focus. So, you know, that could be found in a doctor or a midwife or um, a person who, you know, a, a person who works in a restaurant. It could be found anywhere. A gardener is a very good example also because people who have to combine holistic, um, uh, combine different factors into a holistic overall health of a system. Those are the kind of people I, I mean when I say cultivators. Right. And when it comes to art and culture, what do you think we should be cultivating well, art has a very um, a very strong focus on the individual, on a, on the individual artist, and the sort of importance of the individual artist's vision. And I, I actually think that that is very important. But um, but so many things in our society happen in in groups and happen because of the effort of a of a small group of people who are somehow seeing things in a similar way. And I think that art could probably do more to take account of those kinds of um, those kinds of ways of working. On Canvas, we've had a few conversations about the duty of care of curators and artists, and um, and curators specifically that they need to, the duty of care that they have to have for their artists. How have you approached care in your work? That's a good question. Um, I think that's very. That's you. You said it better than I probably would. That there's an idea of a duty of care for for other artists and for other people involved in the situation. So, on a very practical level, you know, it's just about actually seeing each person who's working in a project as an individual. But in terms of my my work, I often set up situations where something needs to be cared for or otherwise is is in process. So, I had a work where. You know, we, we, we took care of 26 trees inside a museum for the duration of an exhibition for four months. And that those kind of projects also bring all kinds of unexpected complexities. So at one point there was an infestation 
of aphids in, oh, no. in one of the trees. And the only way to kind of care for that was, according to the horticulturalist, um, to introduce spiders. So then we introduced a bunch of spiders into the museum, and the museum was obviously not that happy about that. <laughs> but it was somehow, you know, it was, it, it was about this, this caretaking process, producing all of these other things that were going on. So I think, um, you know, it's something I like to try to, um, to take account of, because normally in art, the idea is, you know, you, you have something frozen, like a sculpture or a, or a painting is often thought of as something frozen, and, and the processes that are needed to take care of it are not really visible. The idea is to exclude those things from being visible, and I kind of like to raise them back to visibility. Well, it's kind of what you were saying before when you were talking about cultivators. The examples that you're giving, you know, when you're talking about doctors and horticulturists and nurses and people working within communities, they've got a duty of care as well. So it's 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 acknowledging the way in which affect kind of, you know, ripples out from one person to another. That's very true. It makes a huge difference. Um, I think, you know, activists are also highly trained in, in this kind of thing. Oh, yes, definitely. And how did you go about finding Australia's cultivators? Have ideas come to you quite clearly when when visiting Australia? Yeah, I mean, Australia is very specific. You know, when, when, when I work, this is the first project I've done here, so when I've worked in Europe or the U.S., I, I've probably had less specific thoughts to the geography and culture of, of the place than I have here because there's been a lot for me to learn. And just on the weekend, for instance, I was in the north. I was near Cairns, um, and I was with one of the artists who I invited to be part of this project, Daniel Boyd, and his family up there. And that was a amazing experience for me, um, just to see all kinds of things outside of Sydney, which is where I've been mostly spending my time uh, when I'm in Australia over the last year. But yeah, it gave us a lot of thoughts, and I think that that, um, that made me take longer, in a way, to generate the idea, because I wanted the idea to somehow relate to this place, and, and not to bring my work like in, in a flying saucer and land <laughs> and then take off again after two weeks. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wanted it to be more like a thing that got uh, rooted here. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think that it's being aware of the surrounding and the environment and the context that you're bringing in, and that is, you know, your own duty of care coming in as well. Um, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Keeping that in mind, let's go to our next track. This is Julia Jacqueline, Don't Know How to Keep Loving You. I'm Sabella D'Souza, and we're talking with Asad Raza about Caldor Projects. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm... Bella D'Souza, and you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. We're in studio right now with Asad Raza talking about the Caldor Projects 2019. Asad, I thought we could talk a little bit more about your past works. You did something in your apartment, I believe. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, I did a show in my own apartment um, in 2015, I think, and the idea was somehow, rather than treat the apartment like an empty space, to treat it uh, as a, a place where I lived. So artists and friends and people were asked to, to, to propose instructions that I had to carry out or rituals that I had to do or, you know, also they could install works, but they could take account of me being there. And then I gave a tour to every visitor for five weeks, which was a little bit grueling, but fun. You know, it was kind of like every day you have to psych yourself up and then you do six hours of giving tours to visitors and then you, you go for dinner. But 
the first two days only two people came. I think the first three days only two people came, and then it slowly built. And I uh, heard got busy. I heard that your uh, bathtub got clog- clogged up. Is that right? Yeah, an artist who's a friend of mine, Sophia <laughs> Almeria, great artist um, who is from Qatar. She proposed this ritual called hex, which is kind of like witchcraft, where I had to write a um, I had to write a list of things that I wanted to happen on a piece of paper and soak the paper in soy milk and then stuff it into the shower drain <laughs> and then clog the shower drain with a, a, a big um, kind of plug of her hair that she had sent me in a box. Did it work? Uh, it, I think it did. Some of the stuff has definitely come true. Some of the stuff I think I've forgotten about, so I'm not sure. <laughs> so maybe it's come true, you know? I think so. I think it worked. It was definitely the most spiritual practice I've been involved in for the last few years, so I was, felt like she had given me a religion for a few weeks. It's beautiful. Asad, I wanted to ask about Schema for School, a work you did mm-hmm. back in 2015 that considered new models for teaching and learning. What inspired mm-hmm. this work? I don't know. I was, I was asked to do a piece for a graphic art biennial in, in Ljubljana, which is where the most important graphic art museum is. And I was thinking, like, you know, my work is usually involves interactions with people and processes, and so I was thinking graphic arts, what, what, how can I deal with that? And then I was thinking about the fact that graphic art is often a way for people to put up information. You know, you put like fly, um, fly paper, you know, um, posting on the wall, street art, and political pamphlets and zines. Those are all things that really come out of graphic, uh, graphic arts. And so I thought I should do something where ideas get transmitted. You know, and um, so I, I thought maybe I could. I could run a school inside the museum where we talk about things that I wish I'd been learning in school instead of what, you know, I did do. Um, ideas I the, thought were relevant. What were the, some of the ideas or knowledge that you wanted to pass on to people that you didn't get taught yourself at school? Well, some of it was just more up-to-date ideas about the way the world works and, you know, things like we were talking about before the break involving care, involving um, the relation between things and, you know, uh, we read a lot of philosophy in there and a lot of network theory. And so it was about where meaning in situations comes from, it comes more out of like the collective relationships between people and things than it does from, you know, some historical sort of uh, superhero. Yeah, I guess I wonder in some ways, like how does knowledge and education pass from an older generation of artists to a younger? And I guess some ways that's through curation and through working with them. How have you kind of approached passing knowledge in, in this iteration of your work. Yeah, I mean, it was really fun here because John Caldor had asked me um, that if it's, you know, possible to involve Australian artists also in the project, and many of my projects, you know, are, are collaborative with other artists, and so I was able to spend a lot of time with Australian artists last year, and we did a workshop together, and I, I always feel a little bit like I'm not sure if I have anything to teach you, but I can tell you stuff that I've been through and we can do things that I've done and then you'd see what you can take from it. So you always have to approach it knowing that um, what will be taken away is probably something different from what you intend or what you might want to be taken away, but that's sort of how it should be. Yeah, I think it's approaching knowledge in a way that you kind of come in with like, you know, open palms and you're like, here's a bit of information and you can take it and maybe you'll bring in your own context into it and hopefully build some new form of knowledge out of that. Yeah, and you learn a lot, you know, you, seeing, the younger, seeing the younger generation, you can observe that they, their minds work in different ways, they've come up in a different world with different conditions to the one that was, you know, around when I was younger, so been also interesting for me and 
and here especially because you know I'm I'm very aware that there's a different set of cultural influences. I'm particularly interested in the idea that you know for for, for instance there's an Aboriginal culture that's going back like a hundred thousand years, mm-hmm. and so that's something that in the U.S. of A. is not as evident. You know, Australia I think is ahead in some ways at handling like the bigger picture of human history than just what's typically in Europe and North America, like the last 10,000, the story is like 10,000 years old, but actually the story is 100,000 or or even 500,000 years Mm. old. Yeah, and it's about understanding and giving space to those, this narrative that is prevalent and needs to be acknowledged within our First Nation communities. Yeah, for sure. And Asad, you're off to Fairfield. Well, in fact, Khaled Sabsabi's Bonnerig Garage Studio, which I've been to, he only lives down the road from me. <laughs> How are you working with Khaled? Well, Khaled's an amazing artist, and you know he's very intuitive. I, I, I what I call like the channel, like with a, where creative things come from. I feel like the channel's always open somehow with him, and um, I explained him a little bit about my ideas and what I was thinking, and then he had an amazing idea which related to Sufism and to the idea of a hidden reality underneath what we see, underneath everyday life is another reality. And um, and then it, it, everything came out of that. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for visitors to the, to the exhibition, but I, I would say it was a lot of fun working with him and his ideas came so, uh, seemed to come so easily. You know, it was, I felt like it was like making music with Prince or something. Like it just <laughs> seemed like the guy could just do it instantly. Yeah, he used to be a, a DJ. Haled did so <laughs> right. back in the day. That makes sense. And you're also working with Brian Fuwata. Is that right? He's mm-hmm. he's making a dance, I believe. Yeah, I mean, he's inhabiting the space. And, um, and, and in a way, like, I, I guess a lot of his work has to do with haunting. And so on some, in some way, he seems to be producing a project where he's going to haunt the space, um, which I find a very interesting thing because Brian also has a very striking or very strong presence. Yes. Uh, whether you're listening to him or whether you whether you're you know you're hanging out with them and so uh yeah that that's that's what he's up to and there's there's some mystery around it he's he's developing scores and i think you'll also be able to view those scores at some point um at different moments during the project and he's also going to be there um you know doing his doing his haunting there is a lot of secrecy around this project, which is quite intriguing. <laughs> You've worked a lot with scent. Uh, I believe with your tennis court work, you actually were serving tea. Are you working with with scent in this, this current project? Mm, well, in the tennis piece, we actually also made a scent. There was a oh, jasmine tea that gave off a scent, but we even made a scent that was intended to sort of create some pheromonal um, sense of wanting to be active. You know, it was like a, it was like it had to do with the pheromones of sweat and, and, and feeling like you want to run around because I wanted the visitors to really take part in that piece and not just watch, um, which is a thing for me. And uh, the new work, it's, it's, the whole thing is suffused with scent, but we didn't have to make a specific scent out of, you know, in the sense of a perfume. So I think when you, when you get to the show, you'll, it'll be very clear why. And we also read that you're going to be present every day of the exhibition because you believe the exhibition is is like an ongoing thing um, with a life on its of its own. Do you, have you thought about how you will occupy that space at Courage Works? Yeah, I don't want to, you know it's at this it's at this building called the Clothing Store, which mm-hmm. is a bit down the road from the main Carriage Works um, spaces. I don't know if I'll be visible. I'll be there because 
you know, at any given moment, there'll be a group of cultivators. Maybe Brian is going to be there. There'll be other things happening in the evenings. We have different performances. There's a reading and other stuff happening over the course of the thing. So some of it will just be for me to see those things, but also really to keep in touch with the cultivators and how their interactions with visitors are going, I think will be main uh, my main thing and seeing if any of them need, like, you know, some coffee or something. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Asad. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on the air this morning. Um, we actually have Brian Fuata coming in next week, so just cool. after the exhibition. So hopefully we'll, some of the secrecy will be revealed at that point as well. Um, if you're just joining us, that was Asad Raza. You can see his new work presented free at, Cal at Caldor Public Art Project 34 at Carriage Works in Everly from the 3rd of May until the 19th. Up next, we'll be chatting with Ramesh Mario Nithyendran about power, politics and race and his monumental exhibition at Kasula Power House. But first, let's go to our next track. This is Little Sims with their track Venom. There is a language warning. Um, you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Life sucks and I never try suicide Mine's fucked to the more than I realise That was Venom off the 2019 album Grey Area by Little Sims You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 Or wherever you get your podcasts so Oh, no, David, go for it. <laughs> oh, no, so Canvas is putting together a special episode for the 12th of May and it features artists from Kasula Powerhouse's upcoming exhibition, Everyday Madonna, and it will air a week after the panel discussion, Power, Politics and Gender in Western Sydney, that our next artist exhibition incited. We're joined right now here by Sydney artist Ramesh Nethiendran. Welcome. Thanks, David. Thanks for coming in on a Sunday morning. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, when I was asked, when I asked for a biography from Ramesh earlier this week, he just sent me a paragraph of places he's exhibited. Um, so I'll name a few: the 2018 Dhaka Art Summit, the Encounters Sector of the Art Basel Hong Kong, the National New Australian Art 2017. He's presented solo exhibitions at the National Gallery of Australia, the Ian Potter Museum of Art, and his work is held in various collections, including the National Gallery of Australia, the Art. Gallery of South Australia, the Art Gallery of Western Australia. <laughs> this is your own fault, Ramesh. <laughs> art Bank, Ian Potter, etc. Shepherd and Art Museum. But we're talking about his most recent exhibition, currently open at Kasul Powerhouse. It's called Creator, is it not? It is called Creator. <laughs> and can we talk about your formula formative? What's the word I'm trying formative. to say? Formative. Formative. That's yep. it. Formative years in Western Sydney. You grew up in Auburn and yep. then you moved to Litcombe. Yep. What, were, what was your exposure to the world of art and art making? Okay, that's interesting. Um, I think if we kind of go on a more um, biographical mode of biography rather than CV. Um, so my parents migrated to Australia in 1989 when I was one. So they were... Tamil refugees and Auburn's a very big migrant community so you've got people kind of just coming to Australia <coughs> settling um, in Auburn and I think Auburn's a really interesting place because of that reason so what I found what I loved about Auburn was you had this one side where the Maccas was which is where <laughs> my parents lived and then you had the other side where the gardens were and that's where all like the white people lived yeah the peacock galleries <laughs> yeah, and the yes the, yes I know <laughs> that place well <laughs> um, but you know in terms of art I, like my, I was, I would probably, my, exp I was never taken to galleries or museums or anything like that as a child. It wasn't part of, you know, the vernacular of what we do on the weekend. What we do is my brother would go to sport 
and then I would just sit there like doing nothing while he <laughs> while he was playing cricket, um, complaining essentially, um, and. I always just love to draw, and I think that's the bottom line. Like, I've always loved to scribble, I've loved to draw, I'd like to just make things. And I think that's also a very cliched way to describe my exposure to art, <laughs> but it was very physical, it was very material, and I think it was also very gestural. Mm. Well, you taught me last year? Was yep. it last year? It was the year before. Oh, it was the year before. Yep. Everything is a blur. <laughs> um, but it was practice-based research. Yep. You're, you've described your work as monumental in both proportion and in the kind of iconography yep. sense. Yep. Could you describe your process or perhaps the monuments that inspired yep. these structures? Yep. Okay, so I think um, I think monument is a really interesting term in a word. And I think when people think of the term monument, they firstly think about scale and permanence. And I think when I'm thinking about these things, I kind of also want to think about the monument as a very gendered um, thing or a that exists in public space. So I'm kind of interested in the way in which, you know, sculpture with a capital S exists in um, contemporary art discourse, but also in public space. Um, so when I make works, I kind of, I'm always looking and I think people talk about research and I think a lot of my research is observation um, and thinking it's not like I'm, you know, going into academic journals all the time. I don't think I've done that in about <laughs> 10 years. Um, <laughs> like, and I think what really struck me was this big um, sculpture of Captain Cook in Hyde Park and for me it just seemed it seemed totally camp in its kind of exaggerated performance of masculinity like you had this stone block then you had another stone block then you had a concrete block then you had this marble thing then on the top you had this bronze sculpture of this male in this over the top you know pronounced gesture that almost looked like dance it looked a bit satirical um, and I think what's interesting was the definition of obscenity is often about, you know, a perverse display, almost of power, of physicality. And for me, that was quite perverse. And I think, for example, probably the most monumental work I made was at Carriage Works for the National in 2017. Um, and it was really inspired by that. So I wanted to make this kind of urban deity that was like nine metres tall, seemed like raw clay, it was impermanent, um, but also it kind of kept changing because we programmed lighting to f flick and change around it, which was kind of op had the opposing qualities to what I was seeing in public space. Yeah. And you work, uh, like, with that particular structure, it was almost falling apart at yeah. times and you were kind of, like, <laughs> trying to get yeah, yeah. It to stay together yeah, in yeah. one piece, which I think is really interesting. And even your idea of, like, when, we, when you're looking at monuments and you're looking at sculptures, there's, you know, you're inspired by your own identity and your own heritage, but also mm -hmm. these things that kind of surround us in the everyday mm -hmm. life when you're talking about, I don't know, Captain Cook is such a, like, intense person. Do you remember, did you ever encounter that bronze sculpture as a child? Do you remember what you were thinking when you... See, you know what? I think what was interesting, I think as a child I didn't read them as sculptures, mm. if you know what I mean. I think I almost read them as just... Um, which is interesting because they are an imposition on the landscape or in public space. But I think the materials have a certain authority in which you just kind of assume... Um, that they're socially sanctioned in a certain way. Because I know there's an image, there's a um, statue of, say, Governor Macquarie, who was, you know, ordered, sanctioned genocide. Mm. Not, I mean, a massacre, sorry, yes. not genocide. But, um, so, I think as a child for me, it was, I also just wasn't attracted to them. There was no colour, they were quite bland in lots mm, of ways. Mm. Um, so I've always been attracted to kind of polychromatic, kind of over-the-top um, aesthetics. So I think for me, I just, they didn't register to me. 
And can we talk a little bit more about materiality? Uh, yeah. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about ceramics. Uh, Sabella called you the bad boy of ceramics. <laughs> I didn't call Ramesh this. It is a, it's one time Ramesh was referred to as she was it, quoting. and I cannot I, let it go because I, I think it's the funniest yeah. title I've ever heard of. Because yeah. <laughs> ceramics is traditionally about problem solving, uh, but yeah. with materiality and often about constraint, but yeah. your work seems to be busting at the seams a little. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's interesting about um, ceramics or placing work or conceiving work within a history of ceramics is I think we need to think about it in terms of multiple histories. And I think um, people are often very preoccupied with utilitarian modes of ceramics or the material because I think that's what they encounter in their daily life. Um, They sit on toilets, they drink from cups, they eat from plates. Um, However, I think what's really interesting is if you actually go back to the beginning of time, people have been making figurative ceramics, um, you know, as big as their fingers, for example, very small things that we find. Um, So for me, really, I'm more concerned with this history of figuration in the context of ceramics. And a lot of that is often tied with religious practice or spiritual practice or um, kind of representing certain social you know, issues of the time. Um, and I guess for me, that's the, that's the kind of historical mode I'm channeling. I think, I think within Australia, especially, I think we have a bit of amnesia around the history of the medium. It's a bit like plates, bowls, done. <laughs> if you know mm. what I mean? Where, for example, in the seventies, there was a, you know, funk movement where artists were making kind of expressive droopy ceramics. On that note, let's go to Sweet Whirl, a Melbourne-based artist with their song Race Sea. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 or via our digital stream. The dreamy, unhurried Ray C is from Melbourne-based artist Sweet Whirl. I'm in the studio with Ramesh Mari Nithyendran talking about this his exhibition, this exhibition, Creator Ekasula Powerhouse. I wanted to begin or continue the interview by asking what's the significance of the fallow centricity in your work? You're talking about... It's basically I'm talking about big dicks um, <laughs> that appear in your work quite often. Um, I think for me... Um that symbol I use rhetorically. So I think it's the phallus is a really, um, you know, poignant symbol to talk about a whole range of other issues, whether they be um, patriarchy, colonialism, um, race, gender. Um, and also from a formal perspective, I think if we look around, you know, our, archi- our architectural kind of vernacular is often inspired by these kind of long, thin, big forms. Tall. Tall, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think for me what's really interesting is an idea that I think to actually engage with these systemic structures, um, even though through an artwork, I think it's important to kind of inflect some scrutiny on male bodies um, or what are conceived to be symbols of male power. Mm. Um, So I think that's how I always started with it. And I think the other point that I often make is there is a rich history of very graphic phallic imagery. Um, you know, if you look at, say, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, um, India, South Asia, they, they exist. If you look at, you know, Balinese sculpture in kind of religious contexts, there are um, overt kind of sexual imagery that are sanctioned within public spaces. So on the exterior of temples, for example. Yes, and a lot of them. <laughs> a lot of them. And I think what's interesting is that there are lots of views that, for example, a place like India, which is, you know, a 
a home of Hinduism, as soon as, um, you know, the British kind of came and imposed a certain, you know, Christian morality on them, there was suddenly a kind of sense of shame. They were covering the lingus, for example. They were knocking well, them off. And there was also the, like, you know, modesty was introduced in the sense of, like, a choli didn't exist until yeah. the British arrived. Before then, it would just be, like, wrap the sari around yourself. <laughs> You're fine. Go out. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was the introduce- introduction of a blouse being... Mm-hmm you know, part of the Indian dress as well. Yeah. And there were sites like Kajuraho that kind of got, like, pushed to the side yeah. and were like, oh, no, like, don't go there. I think mm-hmm. I went with my dad and he was like, you know, you couldn't not be on acid for a very long time to have made these structures for <laughs> thousands and thousands of years yeah. of just people having sex. But, you know, it's intense. Yeah, it is. Um, so I think, for me, it's it's about kind of normalising those representations. Well, not normalising, more like... Putting them in public kind of gallery spaces. And acknowledging that they're there. Exactly, exactly. Because I think if they stay covert, um, I think that's a big way in which power is... You have to name the thing. Exactly. If you don't name it, then you're giving it power. Exactly. And I think the power then becomes insidious if we don't. Yeah, if you don't name it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So you do name it through the structures. You've also worked with human hair Mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. We've had many conversations Mm -hmm. about this, but I hear... Is this going to be more wig talk? Oh, I... We started the morning talking about wigs. Yeah, my entire practice has slowly diverged into wigs. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's... I'm doing a lot of wig work, but I'd like to hear Mm -hmm. you no longer are working with human Mm -hmm. hair. Could Mm -hmm. you talk a bit about that? Yeah, okay. Um, A bit of context. I think when I was teaching you a couple of years ago, you were really into human hair. Or just hair, and I was like, oh my God, yes. It's like, you have to go... You have to go here, and you had all these plaits, and I was like really excited. But I remember, um, I think around 2016, I was really interested in this idea of biological material as and the way in which it circulates in a kind of global capitalist um, economy. And I think what's really interesting, these frameworks around you know exoticism exist specifically in the West, and they. Like, I was really fascinated with the idea that you could go on eBay or go on AliExpress and actually buy um, biological material of people from other cultures. And specifically with hair, hair is often fetishised in terms of region in this kind of market. And I think I was a bit young and I think there was just a point in my practice where I'm like, oh, I love this. This is amazing. And oh, human hair. And like, yeah, and I was, yeah, that's it. And I was growing my hair. Anyway, um, so I think it all existed in that personal context. But then... And I used it, and I kind of loved it, and I think it added a really interesting material dimension. But as I kind of did a, more, did a bit more research, I kind of was thinking a bit more about ethics. And I think I was thinking, if I'm going to critique the ways in which these biological matters are circulated in these economies, I don't think buying them is a very... Um... <laughs> I don't think contributing to the economy exactly. that makes them exactly. like an economic kind of... Contributing demand for them. That's what I was doing. And... So I said, and I, the other thing is, I just realised I can't actually verify where this hair has come and from and how it's been obtained. Exactly, because mm. like you know, there's the the story that is kind of told is like there's these huge markets in or there's temples in India for particular Hindu gods, and you go to temple, and when you go to temple, you give uh, like a sacrifice or um, an acknowledgement by mm. shaving off your hair, and then that hair is shaved off, and then those hair is put into bundles, and then those bundles are sold for like thousands and thousands of dollars, mm. and you can only wow. and when you're buying them directly from the temple you can only buy them in like like 100 kilos like it's like you have to buy this like an enormous amount because wow. i went what do people do with it in weeks all oh, right yeah. weeks okay. extensions so yeah. like it's part of the like good hair movement yeah. you know uh was it i can't remember who did that documentary it doesn't matter raven <laughs> simone is in it <laughs> but undyed human indian human hair is 
the most sought after right. in the wig, in the kind of human hair market. I mean, it's considered to be quite thick. Um, the black is considered to be quite rich of the hair, so you can't actually get that with dye. And it's a mixture between it has a, a, a body like to it. Yeah. There's a body wave to it as mm. well. And then on top of that, um, because it is very uh, beautiful in India to have long hair, you're getting like long, uninterrupted strands. Yeah, strands, which is like th- where the money is. <laughs> Um, I went through yeah. <laughs> I went through a whole thing where I was looking at working with hair, and then I ended up working with synthetic hair, mm-hmm. um, which you would use for Brahman dance, mm-hmm. um, that you would like uh, plait into your basically your normal hair. But I at one point tried to buy like a synthetic version of this on a website and then I think my number now has ended up in some random Indian hairs like contact thing because they call me all the time on WhatsApp at like 3am being like do you want to buy this human hair and I'm like no oh my gosh <laughs> do you want to oh there's another question we well, we want to know a little bit more about um, well the ideas that you've been exploring because there is a panel that's mm-hmm. attached to, mm-hmm. to this exhibition as well mm-hmm. um, so the panel is or co-presented with Sydney Writers Festival and it's at Casula Powerhouse. I mean, it's moderated by Daniel Browning. Daniel Browning um, and I think the interesting thing about where I'm finding myself right now is um, I grew up in Western Sydney. I went to high school in the city, though. Um, but I'd never really positioned my practice in a Western Sydney context. And I know especially um, in New South Wales, I think there is this real idea of like a Western Sydney artist and I think in a lot of ways it's also come from priority areas in state funding, for mm. example, um, with Western Sydney being a priority area, and that's really amazing. But I've never really seen myself um, in that way as our Western Sydney artist. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't... I, but in a way, I always have at mm. the same time. Like, I see myself as a Westie. Like, that's just the bottom line, really. Um, and I think some people have asked me, especially with this exhibition like what's the significance of having a solo exhibition in a western sydney context mm. um for me and i think for me the most important thing about that is about access and i think having uh, being showing work in a context where you know communities that are similar to my own community can kind of easily access the work i think was quite important to me um so in that way, I think the panel is really looking at the way the significance of a Western Sydney context in terms of the way in which artists explore their ideas. So the people that we have on the panel, including like Justine Williams, for example, um, Chidem Idemir, we're kind of exploring these kind of political issues and based in Western Sydney, I think that's what we want to talk about, really. Mm. Like, what is the significance about an art practice positioned in this context? versus, say, a more metropolitan mm. area. And I know that Kasula also has, like, an education mm-hmm. public program, so young mm-hmm. children are going yeah. to come and, and experience your work. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's activities around that, yeah. and the ideas are kind of explored. That's mm-hmm. also... Is that something that you thought about as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I used to do a lot of um, more kind of workshop-based engagement, um, but I think as I've... As I've, um, you know, developed more demand for the physical work, I've kind of had to prioritise my labour a bit. Um, So I'm actually, a lot of the time, I'm more instrumental in designing the workshops, but I don't necessarily deliver them anymore. Um, Although I do do things at least once a year. Like, the thing that I love doing the most is going 
to schools that are very much outside of the city. Mm. Um, so for with Perth Festival, I went to about five schools that were all about an hour out of Perth. Um, and that was really rewarding um, and interesting. But I think, I think education is a really important thing in the context of art and especially in the context of access because I think the fact that art has a real speculative dimension means that we can actually do some difficult and also some edgy um, things within an education context. Yeah. Um, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today, Ramesh. If you're just tuning in, that was Ramesh Mario Nithyendran talking about his exhibition Creator, which is open till the 12th of May. Get in, see it. Um, the public program is on the, th- is on the, the 5th. 5th. The 5th. And we'll be airing snippets of the audio from the program on our show on the 13th. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.